This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Well, for the past couple of weeks, if, you, if you've been around, you know that Tony has been walking us through an Advent series, uh, an Advent series that we've been calling uh, Knowing Jesus. Tony has uh, made the point that um, we have been noting that Christ is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is the one set apart by God and consecrated by God for the work of redemption, which encompasses the offices of prophet, priest, and king. As we've considered the offices of the Messiah, we've examined his office of prophet, where Christ is our prophet, because he is the one who speaks with the power in his voice, with the authority of God, that pierces our spiritual blindness and opens our eyes to our need for a redeemer. We saw last week from various passages in Hebrews that Jesus is our priest, because he alone is able to reconcile sinful people to a holy God through his substitutionary sacrificial death on the cross. And it is there at the cross that he turned the full wrath of God away from us by absorbing it upon himself. And having ascended to the right hand of God, he is now the great high priest, longing to make intercession for us. This week, I want us to continue with the theme of Jesus as our king. Much of our time will be spent bouncing around the scriptures, so I don't want you to feel compelled to join me. I'm going to bounce around pretty quick. Um, I invite you, you're welcome to keep up if you can. Um, but we'll spend our time this morning in Psalm 110 as we start our time together as a launching point. As we consider Christ our King and we examine from the scriptures four aspects, four distinctives of Christ who is our King that I think should lead us into thanksgiving should lead us to praise, that should cause us to bow down and to worship our Savior, to adore him. That's where I've been praying our time leads us today, in the worship of our King. If you're using one of our outlines, you want to follow along, I'll be noting that Christ is our promised King, he is our priestly King, he is our risen King, and our returning King. The text I want us to start with, as I said, is Psalm 110 and verse 1, and then I'll jump over to Psalm 2, and, and these are two Psalms, Psalm 110 and Psalm 2, that are written by King David, who under the inspiration of the Spirit prophesied about the anointed one, the Messiah King who would come. And he says these words in Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then again in Psalm 2, he will write in verse 1, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, that is his Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision and then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Here we see that King David writes prophetically about a greater king than he, about one who is a, has greater majesty, greater supremacy, greater authority. And he's the king who is identified as the son of God who is coming to deliver Israel and one who will sit on a throne that is higher in majesty and supremacy than any throne that there will ever be. And while on that throne, the, the, the psalmist and the prophecy promises that the Messiah, the Son of God, will crush her enemies. Up until the birth of Jesus, Israel, for hundreds of years, has been waiting, been waiting for this king, waiting for God to make good on his promises, to deliver them through a Messiah king. And we need to remember that this this people, this Israel, is a suffering people. They've been a people who've been for centuries conquered, oppressed, delivered into slavery. This is a suffering people longing for deliverance. Longing for deliverance. And they've been waiting. 
And waiting can be hard. And while waiting to see God work and accomplishes his plans and purposes, I think for any of us, it's easy to lose hope. It's easy to grow fearful. It's easy to wonder, is God listening? Is God care? Is God going to do what he says he's going to do? Or, with eyes of faith, we can hold fast to the promises of God, knowing he is faithful. I think that the birth of Jesus reveals two kinds of heart attitudes that can be expected as we wait on the promises of God. We won't spend a lot of time here because next week we're going to celebrate Jesus, so I don't want to spoil the punchline. He's born. Um, in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we see two kinds of heart attitudes. An attitude of faith, and I think an attitude of fear. Matthew chapter 2, Matthew writes these words. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, or magi, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. Verse 3 says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. First, we see the faith of the Magi here. They come, it seems to me, just sort of with this childlike faith as they enter into Jerusalem. And they say, where's the baby? Where's the one who was born king? These Magi, I think it's important for us to know, they're not Jews. They're not ones who've been holding on to the promises of God for centuries. These are men who have perhaps traveled some 500 miles from the east. They are generally thought of as learned men and all sorts of, of mathematics and astronomy, medicine, history, and even magic. Some would call them astrologer priests. And they make this journey 500 miles, 500 miles by foot, really a journey by faith, because somehow they heard, somehow they knew where he would be born, that is where the Messiah King would be born. Perhaps they'd been told Perhaps they'd read prophecies. We don't know, but they heard about a promised king who was greater than any other king, that he was a baby boy, and they came with eyes of faith to worship him. And we read later, they fell down when they saw him. They fell down, and they worshiped him. I think they fell down and worshiped him, recognizing him as God. So we see the faith of the Magi, and we also see, I think, the fear of Herod. Herod when he heard this, it says, was troubled. It says, in all of Jerusalem with him. Troubled by the news. Troubled here expresses the idea of someone being stricken with a spirit of fear in their conscience. Herod, no doubt, was fearful of losing what he valued. Losing his crown, losing his power, losing his authority and autonomy to this baby king who was born king of the Jews. And he responds, we read later in, in Matthew chapter 2, with a maniacal rage in order to preserve his kingdom and his throne. His love for what he possesses blinds him to the truth. And I think at one point in, our, in all of our lives, this is all of us, being blinded from the truth and fighting to hold on to our autonomy, fighting to remain in control of our own lives and our own destiny. However, for many of us here in this room, many of us have experienced the grace of God and the mercy of God, and he has caused us to see with eyes of faith that the king has come, and we lay down our lives. We lay down our crowns before him, and we worship him. For some here today, though, perhaps you, like Herod, still refuse to let go. Refuse to let go of what you hold on so dearly to. Refuse to let go of your kingship. And refusing to let Christ assume his rightful place on the throne of your life. Today my prayer has been that if that is you, that you would let go. And that you would look at, to your hope. And let your hope be the promised king. And that you would with eyes of faith, like the Magi, bow down and worship him.
In a few days, we all know, we'll celebrate the birth of our king. And let it be a reminder to you that while waiting upon God to act in your pain, in your grief, in your adversity, remember that in the promised king, in the promised king who came, that in Jesus, all of the promises of God are found in him. All of them. Do you want to know if God is faithful? Look to Jesus. Can God be trusted? Look to Jesus. Does God hear your prayers? Look to Jesus. He is the promised king in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. He is the promised king, and as we talked last week a little bit about, he is also a great high priest. In Psalm 110, verse 4 here says, he is a priestly king. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Tony noted last week that he is a superior priest to all of the priests before him. He is superior in his deity and in his humanity and has been given a whole other category of priesthood named after Melchizedek. Tony shared that he is a superior priest because a priest because he possesses a superior priesthood. Priests come and go, but Christ is our high priest now sits at the right hand of God forever, continuing his office as priest, making intercession for us. But he's not just our priest, he is our priestly king. He is a king with authority and, a pow and power and an ability and capacity to rescue and to redeem and to deliver his people, not from governments, not from unjust laws. He came to deliver his people from the power of sin and death. So when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem during his earthly ministry, that same city that was troubled by his arrival as a baby was now publicly hailing him as king, as Messiah. He was publicly acknowledged as he entered in Jerusalem as the son of God, as the Messiah, as the king of Jerusalem who would save Israel. They saw that as a fulfillment of the prophecy in Zechariah. Where Zechariah says these words in Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You recall that Jesus is riding in now, on a donkey, into Jerusalem. And the people lay at his feet, and they're screaming, they're shouting. Mark records that they're blessing the name of God, and they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. And they say, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means to save, it means to rescue. These people expected deliverance. They expected deliverance, finally, from their oppressors. In this case, that would be Rome. They expected that Jesus, as he's riding in on the donkey, was going to march right in, sit on the throne of David, and crush the armies, the kingdom of Rome. But this king is unlike any other king. He is unique. He did not come to conquer nations, at least not yet. The eternal Son of God became a man to deliver us from the power and the reign of sin. Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, that he came that he might give his life as a ransom for many. And, and why does that matter? Why does it matter that he came for that reason? Here's why. Because absent our work of a priestly king, the scriptures say we are dead people. Under the condemnation of sin, without God and without hope. There is no one who can merit or earn the favor of God. All have sinned. All are born with a natural inclination to reject God and worship and serve what is created rather than the creator. And we all know this. This is every one of our experiences. We all know that at some point in our lives, perhaps some of you still now, reject the truth, suppressing it in unrighteousness, seeking to live after your own wants, your own desires, and for many of us, by the grace and mercy of God, he conquered that. 
those desires in our lives. And, and we know that our inclination is natural, bent towards rebellion because, and this is perhaps an overused illustration, but nonetheless, it is clear. If you have kids, none of us has ever had to train a child to disobey. Never. They are hardwired to rebel, to disobey. And many times they do it just naturally and effortlessly. See, sin and rebellion, selfishness, pride, is part of who we are. The scriptures say we are slaves to it, and we cannot set ourselves free from it. We need rescuing. We need deliverance. We need a king who will conquer sin and death. And Jesus is that king. Note Christ's own words in Luke chapter 4. As he enters into the synagogue, he says these words. He is given a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And he says, and he, write, he reads these words that were written in the scroll. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. See, Christ, reading from the prophet Isaiah, says, I came for a purpose. I did not come to conquer Rome. I came to set the captives free, free from sin and death by living a righteous, sinless life and offering himself as the perfect, eternal sacrifice, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And God raised him from the dead as an emphatic declaration that the work of redemption and rescue was complete. See, the Christian has been rescued and redeemed from the power of sin to condemn you before a holy God. And we have been rescued from the power of sin and the rule of sin in your life. And that is good news that is worth boasting about. We are free to live lives that bring glory and honor to our king. And we all have, again, our own stories. And if you're a Christian here today, you know your life today is not what it once was. And that is worth rejoicing in. And yes, we also know that though we have been set free from the bondage of sin, we are not yet set free from its presence in our lives, from the temptation of sin and the lure of sin. And that's the temptation we experience in this life. We still experience sin. We still experience death. Though rescued and redeemed, right, we still die. We still watch our loved ones die. We still experience the effects of sin as we experience pain and suffering. The Christian still struggles with sin because its presence remains. And that's our tension because we live in real deliverance from sin's power, but not yet total deliverance from sin and death. We are truly rescued, but we are not yet fully rescued. For that, we must wait. We must wait and we must persevere, trusting in the grace of God to sustain us and carry us, knowing that, that our king is not dead, that he is risen, that he is actively ruling, reigning, and transforming and changing lives of people day by day, moment by moment. And for that, we must rejoice in our king. See, God not only raised him from the dead, but we read in Acts verse 1, chapter 9, after addressing his disciples that Jesus was lifted up and a cloud took him out of sight, fulfilling yet another messianic prophecy from Psalm 68, that he would ascend on high. Peter at Pentecost quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, as evidence 
that the risen Savior is whom he said he was. In Acts chapter 2, verses 29 through 35, Peter says these words, Brother, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of all that we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Christ has ascended into heaven, sitting at the right hand of God, sitting on a throne of supremacy. Peter says here in verse 33 that Christ being therefore exalted to the right hand of God, exalted in the Greek has this idea of being raised up to a summit, to dignity and honor. Peter, or Paul would write in Philippians chapter two, speaking of Christ humbling himself, leaving the throne room of God and humbling himself to the point of death on a cross, taking on flesh, becoming a man, dying a death that we deserve. He would say God's response to that is therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Highly exalted him. Paul adds a prefix to the same word Peter just used. The idea that he's super exalted. Elevated by God the Father to the highest rank of power, of authority, of might, and supreme majesty and dignity. There is no one higher. There's nothing who sits in greater dignity, honor, and majesty than King Jesus. And Paul says, why did he do that? Verses 10 and 11. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's no one, nothing higher than Jesus, deserving of more praise, of more glory, of more adoration. And what should our responses be to this? Peter again says that because of who we are, in 1 Peter chapter 2, because of who we are, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. What does he say? He says he does this that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Because of your association with the king, you are to proclaim, we are to proclaim, to testify of the virtue, of the majesty, of the excellencies of Christ our king. There is no one greater. There's nothing greater. And our lives are to bear witness and testimony to proclaim the virtues of Christ. And yet, we're prone to wander. We're prone to give glory to things that are empty and worthless, to elevate them to positions in our lives that actually ultimately have little value little worth, but we make much of them. Here's an example. Anyone play fantasy football? Anybody? Okay. Okay. Fantasy football. I'm in the playoffs. But here's the thing. I've been playing fantasy football for 20 years. And I enjoy it. It's fun. But here's the thing. Here's my temptation. I made the playoffs, right? boasting in my fantastic abilities to coach a make-believe football team, <laughs> right? But there's really a truth in that early on, early on, it would consume me. So much so I had to actually leave a league that my brother created. I had to step out of that league. And I told him, bro, it is dominating my every thought to try to win this thing. And he looked at me like I was crazy. He couldn't believe it. 
but it, it used to dominate me because I would elevate it to position of authority. My heart was divided. See, what is it that you elevate so high in your life that supplants the supremacy of Christ? What is it that divides your heart? He is the exalted one. Give him the glory that is due his name. See, our king rules from a throne of supremacy, and he rules from a throne, from his throne with authority. Jesus said to his disciples before he left them, in Matthew 28, 18, he said, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth, all authority everywhere. He's not a passive king, he's an active king, active in the affairs of everything. He's a king who reigns over creation and every created thing. Paul will write in Colossians 1, 15 through 17, these words about Jesus. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. There is nothing outside the rule and authority of Jesus. Everything and everyone answers to him. Hebrews 1.3 says he upholds all things by the word of his power. The universe is in his hands. Nothing happens apart from Jesus. One author said it this way about the authority of Christ in everything. He said not only is his involvement in creation exhaustive, but also in every moment of every day. He doesn't make the watch and walk away. He holds the world, all history, and our lives in his hands and actively keeps them ticking by the millisecond. See, this must give us confidence, brothers and sisters, confidence to live each day knowing that our king is active in every moment, keeping watch, ruling, reigning with sovereign control over every detail of our lives, over every millisecond of every moment that we live. There is nothing he does not see. There is nothing he cannot do. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And because he possesses all authority in heaven and on earth, we must respond in confidence and in hope that just as he rules over his creation, though he is not with us, his people, his church, he continues to reign and rule over us, over the church of God. Colossians 1.18 says, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He is the head of the church. The church there in the Greek is ekklesia. It is the called out ones. It's used in, in uh, Greek literature outside of the New Testament to refer, to refer to those who are called out of their homes to gather for a public assembly. The church is a people called out from the world to gather for worship. And better yet, Colossians 1.13 says, Paul says this about us. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. We belong to a whole nother kingdom, a kingdom without end under the rule and the authority of the king of the universe. And we exist to love and to serve our king. And Christ in his goodness and mercy, I think exercises his authority over his church. And I want us to look for through three ways, through his word, through his spirit, and even through his people. Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. One of the means Christ uses to rule his church, rule his people, is through his word. It is through the word that the church is taught, admonished, corrected, exhorted, encouraged. Hebrews 4, 12 through 13 says this about the word. 
For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrows, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And listen, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him, to him, to whom we must give an account. The word searches out the intentions of every thought that you have. Christ is reigning from heaven through his word in your hearts. Searching out your minds, searching out your desires. That Christ in his earthly ministry, as he spoke, lives were transformed. And so too now, the inscripturated word speaks and lives are transformed. Do you want to know what the king says about your life? About how you should live it? Be in his word. Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who meditates on the word day and night. Day and night. David in Psalm 119 asks the question, how can a young man keep his way pure? He says, by guarding it according to your word. How does, how does Christ preserve his church? By guarding it according to the word. And I've hidden your word in my heart, he says, that I might not sin against you. Absent Christ walking with you side by side. We look to his word, because in his word, Christ is there. It's the word of Christ. Read it. Study it. Reflect upon it. Meditate upon it. It is life for us. Jesus prayed, sanctify them by your truth. Your word, before he even died, before he ascended into heaven, he's praying already, let your word be effective in the lives of my people. He prayed for you before he went up into heaven, prayed that you would be sanctified by the truth of God. The word is authoritative for our lives. In it is everything we need for life and godliness, everything. And as the new year comes, most of us will try once again to start our reading plans. January 1 is right around the corner. And in good faith, many of us will pick up a plan, stick it in our Bibles, and make it probably for a couple of months. Or go grab a reading plan. They're sitting in the bookstore. Grab them before you leave. Stick it in your Bibles. Discipline yourselves to be in God's Word, to think upon it, to meditate upon it, to reflect upon it. Sisters, there's an Old Testament Bible study starting in February. Get into it if you can. Brothers, there is a study in Ephesians starting in the late January. Get into it if you can. Find ways to be in the Word. Be in His Word. And I would say gather with God's people like you're doing today to listen to His Word. Because under the preaching of the Word, the church grows and it is equipped for the work of the ministry. It is under the preaching of the Word that Christ changes people and leads them to faith and repentance. It's the preached word that guards people and protects people. It's, no, it's why Paul would tell a young pastor, preach the word in season and out of season. Why? Why preach the word? Because people will want to have their ears tickled. They'll want to listen to things that make themselves feel good about themselves, about maybe their status of life, to be entertained. Why? Because the word of God pierces it challenges. We'd rather have our ears tickled and feel good about where we are. Fight to be under the preaching of the word so that it will challenge you and guard you and help you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the king. God rules his church through his word and also I think we see through his spirit. The Spirit of God indwells His people. If you're a Christian here today, God indwells you. Think about that. The Spirit of Christ is in you. And as the people gather, God's people go into the world, making disciples and make disciples with the authority of Christ, with the Spirit of Christ in you, speaking truth. The Spirit of God moves through the hearts and minds of people, convicting them of sin, leading them into faith, and repentance. Christ would say these words before, 
as he was leaving his disciples in John chapter nine, pardon me, John chapter six, 16, John chapter 16, starting in verse seven, he would tell them, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that is the spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Christ ascends and the spirit comes. The spirit comes that he might convict the world of sin. Christ in his earthly ministry spoke and sought to convict those around him of the sin in their lives. The spirit is now here convicting the world of sin. That hearts and minds may be transformed, that he might bring spiritually dead people to life, that he might cause the spiritually blind to see that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Through his spirit, he also rules the lives of his people. The spirit convicts us of sin. The spirit transforms us, changes us, as he opens our eyes to the presence of sin in our lives, the presence of sin that remains. And as he does, it causes us to put off unrighteousness and put righteousness in its place. Colossians 3.15 says, so that the, that the peace of Christ may rule our hearts. Christ is in heaven reigning. How does he rule our hearts? The Spirit of God indwells us, transforms us, changes us. And as we put off sin and put righteousness in its place, the peace of Christ rules us. Christ is ruling his church, his people, through his word, through his spirit. I think we also see through his own people. The spirit of God empowers the people of God, emboldening them, equipping them to build up the church, to serve the church, to lead the church. He raises up men to be pastors, under shepherds, under the good shepherd, so the church and his people, his flock might be cared for. He raises up leaders. He gives each of us gifts, the Spirit does, that we might be able to serve one another, love one another, build up the church of God together with the gifts that he gives us that we might bear testimony and witness to the fact that Jesus is alive and that he reigns. He is the son of God. We are called to follow him and to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We need each other. We need each other to remind one another about what is true and what is right and what is excellent, and honorable, and noble, and praiseworthy. We need, to re, we need to be reminded of these things because we can easily forget. We forget. And then we find ourselves discouraged. We find ourselves despondent or in despair. We find ourselves hopeless or helpless. We find ourselves alone because we forget. Because we've isolated ourselves from the people of God. But the people of God is where the Spirit, who the Spirit of God indwells. The Spirit, the Spirit of God may use the people of God in your life to encourage you, help you, build you up, exhort you, challenge you, help you, comfort you, speak truth into your life. Christ is actively, authoritatively, authoritatively ruling his church through his people who are filled with his spirit that we might speak the word of God into the lives of one another. And, and I think that's why with boldness, with boldness, because Christ rules in heaven with all authority, that we must be who we are called to be, salt and light into the world, proclaiming the excellencies of him who loves us, that we must be ambassadors for Christ, representing the king well, speaking of who he is to a world that is lost and without hope, making disciples and make disciples, knowing that Christ has authority in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and there's nothing that stands against him. And those words sound, I think, easy. Let me tell you, as I study this and as I read this, I was praying this week, and as I'm reflecting on Christ as my king, 
with authority under heaven and earth. And yet, for those of you who know me, and those of you who I've talked to about this, I struggle with fear greatly. It is hard for me to open my mouth and speak about the hope of Christ to people because I'm afraid. Afraid of what? I mean, the scriptures say, what can man do to me? But nevertheless, afraid. And it's good for me to remember these things. All authority has been given to Jesus. All authority. Which encourages us to not be afraid. Go be who you're called to be. Rejecting the temptations of this world to think that if you open your mouth, that somehow, listen, we live in America. Go live somewhere else in China and open your mouth. That is fear. Coming to church in China, you die. What is there for us to be afraid of? Fear itself. Our own preservation, our own desires to hold on to what we value, maybe our reputation in front of the world. We don't want to look foolish. But all authority has been given to the one in heaven. He says, go, make disciples and make disciples. For I am with you even to the end of the age. Don't be afraid. So it's a good encouragement to me. Don't be afraid. Christ has authority in everything. We can live without fear. Well, he's also our exalted king who rules from the throne of mercy and grace. So here's the beauty of our king. He invites us to come boldly into the presence of our king. He's our sympathetic high priest. And he bids us to come into his presence. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, says these words, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The king of the universe, the one who sits in supreme position, invites us to come in. To come in. Boldly, with confidence. See, the monarchs, not maybe so much today, but back then, the first century, you don't approach a monarch without maybe fear of your life, unless he invites you. Unless he invites you. This king, the king who's higher than any king, says, come in. Don't worry about getting yourself dressed up. Don't worry about putting on the right attire. Don't worry about making sure your, your guilt is first dealt with before you approach the king. He says, come in guilty. Come in with your guilt. Come in with your shame. Come in with your fear. Come in boldly in your time of need. When do we need, when do we need something from the Lord? When we're afraid. When we're dealing with shame or guilt. That's when we need to go in. Go boldly. Many of us, I would, I would wager, when we struggle with those things, we don't feel like we can go in. We feel like we got to pay penance. Do something. Maybe, Sarah, you know, not sin again. Or sin the way we just did. Before we can go in to see the king. He says, come in. You need, you need grace. You need mercy. Come boldly. He is the supreme king who says, come with confidence. See, he's a king who's not unsympathetic to your needs. He is not unsympathetic to your pain, to your wants, to your desires. He is your priestly king who is sympathetic, who understands, and he freely invites you into the throne room whenever you need him. Elsewhere, Jesus will say in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give rest for your souls. Perhaps some of you need to come to the very first time, the very first time, to the king knowing that your soul is not at rest with him. And here again, he says, come. Perhaps you don't know the king. You're not sure if you're part of his kingdom. Again, I would say to you, he doesn't say clean yourself up first and deal with all your problems. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give rest to your souls. Jesus is our promised king, our priestly king, 
and he is our risen king. And lastly, he is our returning king. After Christ ascends into heaven, Luke records these words in, or in Acts chapter one, verses 10 and 11. He says, and while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. The Messiah King will return. And for us, this is our time of waiting, our time of trusting in the promise of God and trusting in the prophecy that he will return once and for all to judge fully, finally, sin and death and to return and make all things new. Psalm 110 says that he will return to judge. Verse one says, he says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then verses five through seven, he says, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This verse speaks of a harsh reality. The king will return to deal fully and finally with his enemies, that he will put his foot on their neck. They will become his footstool. He will put his foot on their neck. And when David writes these things, he knows what a king does when he goes into victory. A victorious king with conquering over conquering armies will put the generals of the kings on the ground and put his foot on their neck to symbolize the subjugation of that king to the king who's got his foot on his neck. Jesus will put his foot on the neck of sin and death fully and finally. He will deal with death. He will deal with all who ever opposed him. It will be a terrible day for those who rejected him as king and now face him as judge. There's a day coming when he will fully and finally judge the righteous and the unrighteous, the righteous to eternal life and the unrighteous to eternal separation. But before that day comes, there is hope now, now, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The scriptures say today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Let today be the day that you see Jesus not as judge, but as king. Not only will he judge, but the scriptures say he will restore and he will renew and he will rule on earth. Revelation 21 and 22 speak of the return of our king. Revelation 21 says these words, verses one through six. This is John, the apostle John, and he says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be with his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of, life, from the spring of water of life without payment. Then in, verse, in chapter 22, we read, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, 
through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. For there's a day coming when our king will restore everything and he will wipe away every tear and he will conquer death. There will be nothing more accursed. It will be a glorious day for those who know him as king. And much like the Israelites before us, though, who waited, 400 years before Jesus was born. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus made this promise. But we are called to wait in hope, eagerly anticipating the return of our King. We live in hope, brothers and sisters, because this is not all there is. Live in hope, expecting that your King will return and with his return, he will bring you into an inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled, and will never fade away. Just as the world waited and anticipated the first coming of our king, so too with eyes of faith, we eagerly await and anticipate the return of our king. Let me pray.